I want to invite all our listeners to join our Facebook group. You can find us on Facebook under Deep Dish on Global Affairs. This is a public group. Everyone is welcome, so please join in. You can find out about upcoming episodes in advance. You can submit questions to our upcoming guests. So please go check us out under Deep Dish on Global Affairs. The question is, would abandoning Afghanistan leave that territory exposed as it is to cross-border incursions from Pakistan, from Iran, from Central Asia? I mean, $45 billion a year is a significant, huge U.S. national contribution to an area where I would suggest we have few vital national interests. This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen, and today we're talking about new developments in the U.S. war in Afghanistan. To help us understand America's longest war, I'm joined by Ambassador Douglas Lute, U.S. NATO Ambassador from 2013 to 2017, and is currently a senior fellow at Harvard's Belfer Center. Welcome, Doug. It's good to have you on the show. Good to be with you. And also on the line is Ambassador James Dobbins, who was in charge of reestablishing the U.S. Embassy in Kabul from 2001 to 2002, right at the beginning of the war in Afghanistan. He also served as a U.S. Special Representative for Afghan and Pakistan from 2013 to 2014, and currently he's a senior fellow at RAND. Welcome, Jim. Good to have you as well. Thank you. The war in Afghanistan, which I mentioned, has been going on for almost 17 years now. It's the longest war in U.S. history. It's also called by some the Forgotten War because it's not in the headlines every day or, or for many Americans, not in their daily consciousness. But, you know, the U.S. and NATO still maintain something around 16,000 troops in the country. The U.S. is spending an estimated something like $45 billion to keep the war going. So this is a significant engagement. And I want to get beyond the headlines to really talk to you to, to help us understand where things are and how things are changing. About a year ago, in August of 2016, President Trump announced a South Asia policy. Two of the pillars were increasing troops um, in order, as President Trump said, that Taliban and the Islamic State, quote, need to know they have nowhere to hide, no places beyond the reach of American might and American arms. Second pillar was that negotiations to end the war should be between the Afghan government and Taliban insurgents, not um, negotiated directly with the United States. And we've recently had two significant developments on both fronts. First, uh, American diplomats have held face-to-face talks with Taliban representatives. And the other is that we've seen news accounts that the Trump administration has urged American-backed Afghan military troops to retreat from sparsely populated areas and really come back and focus on protecting population centers. Jim, can you start us off just by explaining um, these new developments in policy toward Afghanistan? Why do they matter? Why are they significant? Well, I'd say, first of all, they may be a little less new than they appear. I'll be interested in hearing Doug on this, but um, uh, American officials talked to the Taliban directly in uh, 2010, 2011. Um, We uh, tried to talk uh, in 2013, uh, and in 2014, uh, we eventually negotiated bilaterally uh, the release of an American soldier who was being held by the Taliban. Um, And uh, news reports indicate that American uh, diplomats have uh, talked to the Taliban again recently. Um, So have uh, representatives of any other number of other governments, including, incidentally, a number of governments allied with the United States. I think for a long while, 
we uh, refrain from going very far in such contacts because the Afghan government then under Hamid Karzai objected and frankly didn't trust the United States. Um, and uh, I think we have a different leadership in Kabul. I think we have a greater degree of trust. I understand from news reports that uh, the president of Afghanistan has encouraged the U.S. to conduct these discussions, and so we're doing so. But again, it's not um, unprecedented. As to the news reports um, uh, that we're uh, urging uh, the, the Afghan government to pull back from some exposed um, outposts to more defensible positions, I think we've I think we've urged them to do that for several years um, under Obama as well as under um, uh, as well as under Trump. So again, I'm not sure how new that is, but um, Doug has an even longer history. <laughs> on this than I, and I'll be interested to see whether he has he agrees. Well, uh, Jim, I think you have the history about right. Uh, I remember back in 2010 um, as uh, a move in parallel with the military surge at that time, that there was a renewed emphasis on diplomacy, and that saw for the first time uh, American officials meeting with uh, the Taliban uh, political officials uh, and, and exploring the potential of some sort of political process that might lead to uh, lead to the end of the war in Afghanistan. So this has been going on at least since 2010 uh, in terms of talks. And uh, by way of the military adjustments, I think it's been long appreciated by both um, uh, American military officials but uh, Afghan government officials as well that uh, even with uh, 15,000 uh, allied troops today, coalition troops today, and at its peak, 140,000 Western troops assisting our Afghan partners, that Afghanistan is a very, place, very tough place to secure in total, that uh, it, it features many remote, mountainous areas, um, very far from uh, transportation infrastructure and so forth. These are not places that are easy to secure, and that the security effort in Afghanistan is better placed on the population centers. So uh, I'm with Jim. I think in both, uh, on both counts, both uh, politically reaching out to the Taliban, but also sort of rationalizing or making sense of our military uh, dis uh, disposition on the ground, uh, these are moves that have been going on for some time, and there are moves that make sense. Yeah, so what do you see as has happened over the last year? Uh, President Trump you know, did send in, did agree to sending in a few thousand more U.S. troops, which was a change for him. He needed to be talked into that policy. Um, what's happened over the last year? Has there been a, a shift in, in, in either the role of the U.S., the role of Af Afghani troops, or what's been going on on the ground? Well, look, so the additional uptick in American numbers, so... Roughly uh, 3,000 additional U.S. troops have moved in over the last uh, year or so under this new uh, Trump administration. It has meant that American advisors, alongside Afghan uh, troops, are now um, robust enough, the numbers are large enough, to disperse these American advisors down at to, into the tactical level of the fight. And so what that means is um, you have small groups of American advisors with uh, Afghan um, battalions, so say Afghan formations of three to 500 troops. Uh, so uh, the American advisors are down closer to the action, and that's helpful because they're able to provide on-the-ground advice and assistance to their Afghan counterparts, and most important, they're able to be the eyes and ears of American firepower, in particular air power. 
So that tactical shift, putting advisors down closer to the fight, uh, I think has made a difference. But it's made a difference locally and only temporarily in time. Uh, And what I mean by that is that the gains have been tactical, not strategic, not long-term, not uh, not enduring. And the reality on the ground in Afghanistan is that you essentially have a security stalemate that neither the Taliban nor the Afghan army and police, uh, with our support, uh, are likely to make any uh, significant gains in terms of uh, ground health. So is that basically what we've we've seen is that in the last year, you know, there have been contests over regions, but but basically there was no movement in in long term control of territory during this period. Is that a simple way to say that? Not quite. At least my impression is uh, when we reduced uh, forces beginning, well, we began uh, uh, a number of years ago, but. But when we reduced forces first to uh, 9,000 or so and then to 6,000, the uh, Taliban began slowly to gain ground. Um, They took very briefly uh, a couple of uh, provincial centers, uh, and they began to regain some of the ground that they'd lost back in the the surge of American and NATO forces back back when we had over 100,000. They began to take some of that ground back. Um, I think the plus-up that, uh, the relatively small plus-up that uh, uh, President Trump agreed to um, has halted that erosion. Um, And as Doug said, uh, we have a stalemate. Um, uh, I think uh, when President Trump made that decision, uh, we had an eroding stalemate. Um, uh, And uh, it might be more accurate to say that uh, it's halted the erosion, but not fundamentally reverse the process. So some of the numbers I've seen in terms of territory controlled, and you know, not all territory is equal, um, so that you know, understanding this is important, but for the 407 administrative districts in, in uh, Afghanistan, I, I've read numbers that between 180 or 240 of those are either Taliban controlled, probably the minority, somewhere around 60 of them, and the rest of them contested. Is, is that about the right ratio? And as we think about that, um, are some of these areas more important than others? How should we understand kind of the reality on the ground and, and, and the control of the territory? You're right. There are around 400 uh, political entities, districts in Afghanistan, but you're also right that um, they're not all equal. I mean, uh, the, the districts in and around the major population centers are uh, much more significant politically because that's where the people live uh, than some remote district in, uh, in the highlands of the Hindu Kush mountains um, where uh, there's very sparse population. So uh, the control of a certain number of districts is uh, questionable in that regard. It's also questionable because in many cases, some of these districts are so remote that we don't actually uh, know what's going on on the ground. So our ability, our insight into these 400-odd districts is really, uh, in some cases, quite uh, limited. I think the key point is that neither side, given the current state of play, neither side is likely to make significant gains, gains outside of just um, marginal changes uh, on the ground in terms of the security situation. And I think Jim and I agree that that really constitutes a, uh, a military stalemate and opens the door to um, the importance of a political process. Neither side is likely to win this on the ground.
Great. You took me exactly where I wanted to go with that understanding where we are in the military situation. Um, what is your sense for um, the U.S. strategy of what, what we are trying to achieve there, what Afghanistan wants and, and, and what the insurgents, what the Taliban want out of this? What are, what are people trying to achieve in that military or sorry, in the political resolution? Well, I, I think we have somewhat less insight into the administration's uh, diplomatic strategy um, than we do the military. The military issues periodic reports. Um, uh, journalists are all over the battlefield um, and uh, congressional hearings, etc. So we have a pretty good sense of what the the strategy is, um, uh, as well as what the tactical situation is on the ground and how it's developing. Um, for obvious reasons and, and appropriate reasons, uh, diplomacy is handled somewhat more discreetly. Um, uh, I, I, I think the Trump administration um, is at this point in a process of feeling out the Taliban to see whether there's any real prospect of a deal, if you will. Um, uh, uh, and uh, and they're doing so with the um, positive assent of the Afghan government. Um, I uh, I don't know how developed uh, the administration is in terms of its concept of what it could accept, um, and uh, I suspect the Afghan government is not very far developed in that regard either, um, uh, uh, and uh, probably um, waiting to see what kind of response they get uh, from the Taliban. Clearly, um, the U.S. would like an outcome that um, preserves Afghanistan from becoming again uh, a launch point for attacks on the United States, a safe haven for terrorist movements like al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. Um, uh, and that requires a degree of stability in the country, of governability, um, as well as peace. And uh, so the question is, uh, are there agreements that incorporate the Taliban in the political process in a way that that allows the government to continue to function, that allows the state to continue to develop, and which creates a buffer against uh, the renewal of, uh, of uh, large-scale terrorist um, encampments and uh, employment of Afghan territory. I, I have to agree with Jim. I think uh, if, you, if you start with the premise that there's no military solution and that the security situation is stalemated. Then you turn to alternatives in terms of trying to move this forward. And, and one of the alternatives, of course, is trying to move into some sort of political process with the Taliban. But there I think the premise is that the Taliban uh, represent a political entity, an authentic, Afghan, very Afghan political entity, largely among the rural Pashtun areas of Afghanistan, that has to be taken into account. Uh, it can't, we can't, on the one hand, uh, try to move forward politically, uh, and on the other hand, uh, expect that somehow the Taliban are simply going to surrender on this. So there has to be at least consideration of some political space for the Taliban. Now, what that political space means in practical terms, um, political power sharing and so forth, that's the subject of a potential settlement talks of, of a negotiation. Uh, and our position, the U.S. position for a long time, has been that those sorts of sort of authentically, deeply Afghan political questions must be the result of talks between the Afghan government and the Afghan Taliban, that we can assist, we can, we can promote 
that kind of political dialogue. But ultimately, in order for this outcome, political outcome, to be durable and authentically Afghan, it must be among Afghans. Um, and so I think the way to look at uh, these early and recent reports that American diplomats are again um, reaching out or exploring avenues with the Taliban, uh, these talks should be viewed as a prelude or a scene-setting uh, attempt to see if we can move towards Afghan-to-Afghan talks, which would ultimately, if successful, uh, move us towards the end of this, uh, this long uh, conflict. Again, I'm here with Ambassador Doug Lute, who was the U.S. ambassador to NATO, and also Ambassador Jim Dobbins, who was in charge of reestablishing the U.S. embassy in Kabul right at the beginning of the war in Afghanistan. And why is it in that context that for the Taliban, it's been so important to talk directly to the U.S. or to involve the U.S. in there? Why, why do they choose that strategy and and have they been so firm about wanting us involved? Well, I think there's two reasons, or, or uh, at least two reasons, maybe three. I mean, one is they don't want to uh, increase the legitimacy of the Afghan government, which they're uh, trying to diminish. And so they don't want to talk directly to the Afghan government because that enhances that legitimacy and, and tends to reduce their own as an alternative to the House Afghan government. That's one. The second is that their primary objective, their overriding objective, is to get the U.S. to leave. They're confident that left alone, without the U.S. support, they can, uh, they can uh, uh, achieve a military solution. Um, and therefore, if they just get the U.S. to leave, uh, they don't really have to negotiate with the Afghan government. So that's a, that's a second strain. Uh, and I think there's a prestige for negotiating directly with the United States. We've seen that with North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un, um, uh, willingness um, to, and, uh, and the prestige he derived from his meeting with President Trump. So there's a prestige uh, involved in negotiating directly with the world's only superpower. And I think these last couple points of discussion here, even inside, inside our conversation, reflect why we haven't gotten very far. Right? On the one hand, the Taliban are demanding that they talk to the U.S. first, uh, because that's their war aim. Uh, that involves their war aim of getting us off the battlefield. And on the other hand, we've insisted uh, that uh, the Afghan government and the Taliban should uh, have primary responsibility for a political settlement. So we've been at this sort of uh, who goes first and who speaks to whom uh, kind of uh, stalemate politically as well. Uh, and that in turn is why uh, an American outreach to the Taliban even if in a scene-setting role, uh, could be an important early step in breaking this, what has been this political stalemate about who speaks to whom first, uh, and may eventually move us, uh, move us forward. As we've talked about in this conversation, there have been some cycles that have happened in terms of, of U.S. policy, bringing troops in, moving troops out, different kinds of strategies. Um, President Trump has been vocal at times about not wanting to be in Afghanistan in the long run and and the desire to get out. He's also accused the Obama administration of, of um, you know, announcing an end, end dates and pulling out uh, and therefore uh, creating incentives for for the other side to wait us out. Does what the president say um 
does that influence, has that influenced or will that influence the negotiations? I guess specifically, you know, some commentators have said, they, you know, the Taliban is, is reading the White House and saying, you know, we can wait these guys out. Uh, is, is that an issue? Hard to say. Um, the president is pretty um, unpredictable, um, impulsive, um, and, uh, and comes up with a lot of surprises. Um, if you look at what he said when he announced the policy, which a policy which he said he didn't initially agree with but had been brought to agree with, uh, he was pretty clear that this was not time-limited uh, and that the objective um, wasn't uh, to eliminate the Taliban. It was simply to prevent it from um, uh, overthrowing the government in Kabul and replacing it, which is, um, uh, in other words, to say that the strategy was to sustain the stalemate. Um, although he didn't use those terms, obviously. Um, now, uh, is he capable of changing his mind? Um, is there something that the Taliban could do or say that might get him to change his mind? I have no idea. So I, I, I agree with Jim. I mean, obviously, if you look at um, this administration's approach to longstanding key allies, um, South Korea, the NATO allies, uh, and so forth, um, the one underlying theme is unpredictability, um, and uh, questioning perhaps past relationships. So any any uh, bid, any policy premised on uh, as long as it takes, as much as it takes, uh, sort of the kind of approach of no timelines, reflective of the August speech from last year, has got to be placed in a broader context of um, the sorts of things the administration uh, has demonstrated in actions uh, even since the August speech. Uh, if anything, that should give pause to our Afghan um, allies, or Afghan partners, rather, um, that maybe um, the commitment by this administration is not as strong as, uh, as announced last August, and maybe that should provide an impetus for flexibility on the Afghan government's part uh, to play a constructive role uh, in, um, in the possibility for talks as well. And I think if you look at, if you look at President Ghani's um, uh, initiatives, there's a whole series of things that he's done, beginning back in the speech in in February 28th, uh, where he uh, offered uh, unconditionally uh, to talk to the Taliban uh, to the uh, Eid ceasefire uh, of just the last uh, month or so, um, and uh, and other other significant outreaches by the Ghani government, Ghani himself personally on the line politically, uh, to uh, see if he can open um, a political process with the Taliban. I think that suggests that he's very much in this game. And, and um, if anything, maybe he feels uh, some of the um, added pressure uh, to try to move forward now. If there's an element of uncertainty that I would be alert to here, uh, it is the, the cost figure that you cited early in our conversation, and that is $45 billion a year. I mean, $45 billion a year is a significant, huge na U.S. national contribution uh, to an area where I would suggest um, we have few vital national interests. And when you begin to look at the other things that, uh, that, feed, that are demands on those kinds of resources, $45 billion, um, I think that um, it's important to have a sense of urgency here to uh, begin a political process. And I want to come back to that point in just a moment. Before then, I just want to bring one other regional actor into this discussion, which is Pakistan. You know, frequently uh, been seen as uh, being a sanctuary for Taliban leaders. 
And the nature of the relationship, particularly with the security services, is always re- often reported as, as very close. The Trump administration has tried to put pressure on Pakistan uh, through uh, reductions in military aid. And yet Pakistan also has just had an election with a, a, a new leader coming into power there. How important is Pakistan in the resolving of this situation, and and what should we be paying attention to there? Uh, Well, Pakistan is uh, the most influential of um, Afghanistan's several neighbors, although there's others that can't be ignored, like Iran. And it it could play a very positive role if it chose, Um, and it has in the past on occasion chosen to support reconciliation. What it hasn't been willing to do is close down the Taliban's headquarters and operating capability from Pakistan. Um, It uh, it has been consistently uh, refused to to take those kinds of steps, Um, and uh, and we've seen uh, no real change uh, uh, over the last several years under either Obama or Trump. Um, Everything that the the new... uh, uh, probable prime minister there has said would indicate that he supports that policy of uh, not, as he says, fighting um, the Afghan war on Pakistan territory. Um, but he's new um, and uh, and uh, and is also a somewhat unpredictable character. So we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, I, I largely agree with Jim. I, I think that the change of administrations in Pakistan um, uh, reflects the uh, sort of a very dynamic political setting across the region. So uh, Afghanistan, uh, I'm sorry, Pakistan just elected its uh, uh, put a new power, put into power a new uh, political party, uh, PTI. Uh, meanwhile, in Afghanistan, you've got scheduled uh, provincial, or, sorry, parliamentary elections uh, this fall. Then you have a presidential election uh, programmed for uh, April of next year. So there are political dynamics there as well. Uh, and I think that uh, these will all come into play as we consider how to gain some traction, how to gain some momentum in potential political talks. So the region here is a very important dimension of talks. You know, earlier in our conversation, uh, you, your listeners might have might have just picked up that this is simply a matter of getting Afghans in the room with other Afghans. Well, that's fundamentally true. Uh, but the neighbors here are going to play a, a very significant role. And, and you mentioned you mentioned Iran alongside Pakistan, uh, but China, Russia, India, and the Saudis uh, will all have interest in this negotiation as well. Let me build on a point that you made, um, Doug, a, a moment ago and ask, how should we understand the strategic interests the U.S. strategic interest in Afghanistan, and how does Afghanistan affect the broader regional uh, regional politics? Obviously, we started off there right after 9-11, where uh, Afghanistan was the base for um, planning the attack on the U.S., so it had a very immediate and important, and important relevance. Seventeen years later, a whole bunch of things have changed in the world. How how important is Afghanistan, and how should we see it relative to some of the other challenges we're facing in the region? Well, I mean, you're right to point back to 2001. So, in the immediate aftermath of 9/11, uh, we it was we had a very clear and I would say vital national interest to ensure that we were not attacked again from the source of that attack. Uh, and while the attack tactically was planned and 
Hamburg and Karachi, uh, Bin Laden himself and the Al Qaeda flag, if you will, uh, were in Afghanistan um, and uh, provided safe haven by the Taliban regime. So we had a very clear national interest in 2001, but not long into our incursion in Afghanistan in late 2001, uh, Al Qaeda was dispersed and by and large uh, dispersed uh, and displaced into Pakistan, along with the Taliban leadership uh, itself. So not long after our intervention, um, actually the vital national interest uh, followed Al Qaeda, and Al Qaeda moved into Pakistan. Um, so th since then, the uh, the role, our role, our interest in Afghanistan has to has been preventive. That is to prevent the return of Al Qaeda, and now uh, more recently to prevent the rise of the Islamic State, which has gained a, an early foothold in some, in some parts of Afghanistan. Um, but the vital national interest uh, in Afghanistan proper was largely achieved when al-Qaeda was displaced into Pakistan, and then that featured about 10 years of a campaign, mostly with covert action, uh, to decimate al-Qaeda leadership resident in uh, Pakistan, culminating in the raid that killed bin Laden. So the vital national interest here has shifted over time. You know, I um, agree with most of that, uh, with some reservations. I, uh, I I opened the American embassy in Kabul in uh, December of 2001, and um, I recalled at the ceremony opening it that we had abandoned Afghanistan uh, after the defeat of the Soviet Union and its withdrawal from Afghanistan, left it alone for 10 years, and the result was uh, the attack uh, of 9-11. Um, uh, we've lost more people in a few hours on uh, September 11, 2001, uh, more people than we've lost in Afghanistan since 2001. Um, uh, so the investment, uh, to the extent it uh, has contributed to the absence of large-scale attacks on the United States since 9-11, has uh, proved worthwhile, if, not, if, if still quite costly. Um, uh, I, I think that the question is, would abandoning Afghanistan leave that territory um, uh, exposed as it is to uh, cross-border incursions from Pakistan, from Iran, from Central Asia, um, and uh, weak as the government is, uh, likely again to host large-scale um, uh, terrorists with global aspirations. Um, the Islamic State, rather than al-Qaeda, is the most immediate candidate since it is um, uh, embedded there um, and active there, uh, although uh, last year uh, al-Qaeda uh, encampments were also discovered. Um, so um, uh, I think we have um, a question of uh, our credibility. We've um, committed ourselves to Afghanistan. We've got a population uh, that is largely uh, free, uh, that, is, that enjoys a free press, that enjoys uh, increasing education and uh, civil rights, um, uh, all encouraged by the United States. Um, I can remember even uh, quite liberal Democrats um, who were otherwise skeptical about the war coming up to me when I was briefing on Congress and saying, we just can't abandon those women. Um, so I think there's a number of considerations that uh, that continue to make this a higher priority than pure geopolitics might dictate. 
So, as, no, go no, ahead, Jim, please, I, Doug. I, I don't disagree, but the question is, you know, connecting the degree of American resources, right? The, 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 the means, if you will, so $45 billion, 15,000 troops, m- many fewer casualties these days. Very, right. you know, that's very good news. Uh, but the fact remains that uh, if we compare Afghanistan today with a modest U.S. presence and the Afghan capacity that we've built up over the last 17 years to any number of other places around the world, there are probably, in my, there are, in my view, more likely potential safe havens for transnational terrorists than an Afghanistan, not abandoned by the U.S., but an Afghanistan with a modest, sustainable U.S. presence. So the question is, this comes down as it so often does in in government issues, right? How much is enough? How much American, sustained American commitment at the 17-year mark is enough to stabilize Afghanistan sufficiently uh, to make it a less likely safe haven than any number of N-plus other places around the globe? And that's 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 a very subjective judgment that falls on this administration. That's a, that, and that particular point is, a, is an issue that Doug and I and others uh, debated over many hours when we were both in office. And obviously the, the situation, as you both have helped us understand, is complex and will be continuing to unfold there. As we close, um, I noted up top that this is, this is a situation in Afghanistan which, you, which often is not in the press day to day. And when it is, it tends to be something happens, uh, one event happens that is the peg for the reporting. For each of you, I want to ask, what should our listeners be paying attention to? What is the most important thing for, for people to understand um, and to follow as things unfold in Afghanistan? Jim, I'll let you take a shot at that first. Well, I think, I think probably the thing to watch most carefully over the next um, 18 months or so is um, the Afghan legislative and then presidential elections. I think that if the Afghan government loses its legitimacy, its representativeness, if it no longer can hold the country together, if, uh, if you can't have an election and have a result that people respect and accept, um, then the investment is going to, um, uh, then, our, then our ability to continue to invest is going to be much more difficult. And, um, uh, and, uh, and it's going to be difficult for us and others to sustain the commitment. So um, uh, the last elections uh, were uh, difficult. There was a dispute. Um, the dispute was ultimately settled with a compromise arrangement in which the winner and the runner-up agreed to govern together because it was impossible to determine which one of them had really won. Um, uh, I hope that the upcoming elections are more decisive, that uh, the results yield a more clear-cut result. I also hope that they're peaceful, as was the last, as, as have been all of the elections in Afghanistan to date, and that they have a, a good voter turnout, as have all of the elections in Afghanistan to date. I think if we get over that hurdle, if you have a, a representative, legitimate, widely respected Afghan government at the end of next year, uh, then the chances of uh, ending this with a negotiated settlement are much better. 
Yeah, I, you know, I have to join Jim on that assessment. I think the most dynamic of all these multiple variables we've talked about uh, are Afghan national politics, and those culminate in these these two election opportunities uh, coming up, um, coming up very shortly. By the way, you know, it strikes me that in closing, uh, for a long time. Um, we had a narrative that suggested, a national narrative that suggested that there might be a military solution to this, that we might be able to actually, if you will, win this uh, on the battlefield. And certainly a commitment of 140,000 largely Western troops in the 2009 and 11 period suggested that we were trying to do just that, win this on the battlefield. Um, the narrative that has emerged, though, and which was, representing the president's speech to the nation last August was that there is no merely uh, purely military solution to this fight and that ultimately uh, we would need to bring a political solution. Uh, and, and I think the thing for us to remember now is that it is time to prioritize the politics of this conflict, just as in the past we've so prioritized the military of the military approach. And if anything, the military approach should brought, be brought into support of the political process. So what I mean by that is that there should be, we should at least consider the potential of subordinating our military approach to political ends. And this might have to do with adjustments on the ground, this might have to do with tactics on the ground, uh, may have to do with uh, ceasefires, um, like the ceasefire that was uh, that was in place for several days uh, not long ago, uh, but it's time to prioritize the politics and see if we can bring this long conflict to a close. So bringing this long conflict to a close is something that we would all like to see, I, I'm certain, and something that will continue to play out. Uh, Ambassador Douglas Lute, currently of Harvard's Belfer Center, and Ambassador James Dobbins, currently of RAND, I want to thank you both for really, I think, an extremely illuminating conversation to help us understand what's, what is happening in, in Afghanistan. So thank you both for being here. Pleasure. Yeah, thanks very much. It's always good to work with Jim. <laughs> And thank you for tuning into this episode of Deep Dish on Global Affairs. As a reminder, the opinions you heard belong to the people who expressed them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like the show, please let us know by tapping the subscribe button on your podcast app so you can get each new episode. If you think you know someone who would like this particular episode, please tap the share button and send it to them as well. If you have any questions about anything you heard today, or if you want to submit questions for upcoming guests, please join our Facebook group, Deep Dish on Global Affairs. This episode of Deep Dish was produced by Evan Fazio. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish. I want to invite all our listeners to join our Facebook group. You can find us on Facebook under Deep Dish on Global Affairs. This is a public group. Everyone is welcome, so please join in. You can find out about upcoming episodes in advance. You can submit questions to our upcoming guests. So please go check us out under Deep Dish on Global Affairs.